0: I'm Elena Hudgens-Lyle. And I'm Harvinder Vadva. We're the hosts of Inappropriate Questions, and we're back with Season 3. With some fantastic guests, we break down questions like... Is asking where are you from appropriate small talk? Is it okay to
1: ask a co-worker how much do you make?
0: Should you ask a polyamorous person do you get
1: jealous? Inappropriate Questions Season 3. Available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. We are dedicating this episode to Joyce Ishaquan, following her recent tragic and unjust death in Joliet, Quebec. Her life mattered. Hello, I'm Martine St-Victor.
2: And I'm Isabelle Racicot, and you're listening to Seat at the Table. Well, this season, Martine and I are talking about the power of the Black Lives Matter movement, the
1: urgency of this moment, and how to move forward... Isabel, we often talk about the Black community as if it were a monolith, as if we all subscribe to the same Mm -hmm. ideas, we had the same beliefs, we all agree on the solutions to the the community's problem. Obviously, we don't, and that's been made even clearer in the recent months because we've seen and heard more Black people on various media platforms. We all have different demands, but our next guest feels that some of the most crucial demands to address systemic racism are not being heard.
2: I remember leaving
1: the studio and you looking at me going, Uh, what just happened uh, here? Yeah, we were forced to look at things the way we hadn't looked at them before. Mm -hmm.
0: You cannot eliminate racism by eliminating capitalism. But without eliminating capitalism, you can't eliminate racism. That is the top and bottom of it.
2: Today, we have Andre Domis at the table. Andre is a contributing editor at Maclean's Magazine. He's also quite a prolific writer. You may have read his pieces in the Globe and Mail or the Huffington Post. And his latest project is an upcoming book titled On Killing a Revolution. And I think that it's gonna ruffle some feathers because it explores how the grassroots demands for racial justice are being derailed. being derailed. I'm going to repeat that (laughs) by a concept we encounter in various spaces like the media, pop culture, and even the boardrooms. It's called the buffer class. And the more I read about this concept, (laughs) the more I have questions. So
1: welcome, Andre.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being able to join you.
1: I have to tell you, Andre. When I when I read about the buffer class, number one, I've never heard that term before. I, I I read the explanation, but I'd like you to explain it more. And also, I'd like to know why are you pointing the finger at us? You, you just met us.
0: <laughs> oh wait, hang on a second. So are you are you indenting yourself as part of the buffer class? Because I don't know. If so we. We yeah. may have some beef. I don't know. <laughs> I, well, I'm telling uh, you,
1: I didn't sleep last night, Andre. <laughs> so you better explain it. Yeah, please give us the definition of buffer class.
0: Oh my gosh! What did you think I was going to come on here and say? All right. So, <laughs> um, if you if you if you read Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. There's uh, several uh, points at which uh, he does uh, speak to the existence of a buffer class. It's it's called many things. It's the colonized uh, intellectual, the colonized elite, uh, the comprador class. I don't know, in Cuba they might have called them gusanos. Uh, There's all sorts of names for people who, in the process of social unrest and uprising, uh, do their level best to please the ruling class and to placate them By translating the anger, translating the the discontent into a language that is comfortable enough for the ruling class to accept without retaliating violently against the colonized class. Now, the problem with that is another uh, concept which we can get into called recuperation. Now, under capitalism, the process of recuperation is essentially capitalism adapting to any danger to itself. So in recuperating the uprising and recuperating the protests, what you find are people no longer having conversations about the black working class facing the danger of being snuffed out by police or by so-called vigilantes, which I, I don't like using that word because it's, it, 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 and it connotes that these people are seeking some form of justice when what they really are is racial terrorists Think for example of the uh, the men that killed Maude Arbery in Georgia, and that was not a case of vigilantes. That was a case of white men looking to lynch somebody. Yeah. But that's th- th- those are the dangers that working class black people face on a day-to-day basis. But those aren't the same dangers that black people who are part of the sort of the the, the petty bourgeoisie class, people like us, really. I mean, I I work a white-collar job. I'm a journalist. I don't live in the neighborhood that I grew up in. I'm not facing the same kinds of dangers as I did when I was growing up. Same for many people that I know in my family, many friends and so on. But oftentimes we think that because we came up in those conditions that we still belong to that class and we absolutely do not. So then what we end up talking about instead are things like microaggressions in the workplace, which are of themselves a, a harm. Uh, They can derail careers. They are mentally debilitating, exhausting, oftentimes dangerous and harmful to deal with. But that's not the same conversation as when you're talking about somebody who can walk down the street and face the prospect of death for being in the wrong place at the wrong time or being in their own homes, as is in the case of Breonna Taylor, who was Mm -hmm. killed during an unlocked raid in her own bed. But those aren't the same kinds of dangers that we face. And when we start translating things like abolish the police into defund the police into reforming the police, when we start translating things like abolishing capitalism into reforming capitalism into we need to tax billionaires more, you begin to see the watering down process where the ask at the street level is no longer the ask at the policy level. And that is almost entirely the fault of that buffer class.
1: But because you don't face certain danger, does that mean you don't understand it, Andre?
0: No, it's not to say that you don't understand it. But what it is to say is that you are now, in a sense, wrestling the microphone away from the people that are facing the most danger. Oftentimes are the ones that are out in the street protesting, the ones that are protesting for their lives. And when you take the microphone away from them and begin to talk about the problems that your own class deals with, then the ruling class can say, we can do something about these microaggressions in the workplace. We're going to change our workplace policy conduct. Mm -hmm. They can make these changes that were not being asked for in the first place. I think of, for example, there were voice actors that were either resigning from shows that they were uh, doing voice acting for or apologizing for shows that had already concluded. I'm yeah. thinking of, for example, Al- Alison Brie from that show, Boy Jack Horseman. And yeah. she said that she shouldn't have taken a gig voice acting an Asian character when she herself is not of Asian background. Nobody was asking for that. That is not a solution to the problem of a Black man being killed while jogging, a Black man being suffocated to death over the course of nine minutes by police, a Black woman being killed in her bed. Nobody was asking for any of these things, but they're put forward as solutions that we're supposed to accept as a measure of good faith and goodwill.
2: Well... Okay, I have to consider myself uh, part of the buffer class after Ish. hearing that. No, but I'll tell you why. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm being myself feeling uncomfortable about all of this because of course I've been talking about microaggressions, and you and I in you know, at the beginning of this, the, this season, we talked about that. Second of all, we also want to have people on the show that are bringing solutions, so I feel better about mm-hmm. that and people that are mm-hmm. on the ground. I'm understanding also that there's, it's it's part unconscious because the intention is still good. The intention is, you know, trying to pinpoint a bunch of different problems. What I'm understanding that you're saying, Andre, is that the major and real problems are more on the streets than in the corporate world and in the media. Yet, if we don't fix what we see also in the media which is a lack of representation in all its forms and having people that make decisions at the top, it's gonna all trickle down at the bottom after all too, you know? So I'm 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 trying to understand. Like I feel that there's so many different problems. And I'm actually right now also trying to think out loud of what (laughs) I'm doing right and wrong. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there is no value to having those kinds of conversations. There absolutely is. The problem actually lies with people that fully accept the values and the ideas of the, uh, the colonizing and the ruling class. Mm-hmm. But part of that buffer class includes people just like us in this conversation who, when given the opportunity, turn the conversation away from the actual physical dangers that people face simply going outside of their homes. I'm thinking, for example, of my brother who didn't grow up in the same neighborhood that I did. This is somebody who hung out with people that were in later what would what would be called gangs. Uh, somebody who um, has family members that were involved in, in, in criminal activity. And he's uh, doing really well for himself. But the conversations he's having is, why is it that we grow up under this oppressive system that forced us to make some of these choices? People don't, quote-unquote, join gangs uh, out of a sense of, virility or wanting to be somebody. They band together in groups out of a sense of shared safety and being able to uh, collectivize between themselves. They would get together and uh, share money so that they could buy themselves a pack of hot dogs and so they wouldn't go hungry at school. But those, those are conversations that analyze and bring in the role of the oppressor into the conversation, which is white supremacy itself, which is capitalism itself. So when he thinks about his, his situation growing up or thinks about his life growing up, he thinks about why was this system that relegated us into this poor social housing, this system that relegated us into uh, some of the, uh, the worst funded and the worst teaching schools, the system that gave these young men no opportunity to have decent jobs, to have summer jobs, that if they were to hand in a resume at a local retail store And the manager of the store sees their postal code and immediately dismisses it. And I know this is true because I've seen this happen myself. What, why is it that we have no alternatives in the system other than what we're given? And then when we turn to these alternatives, which others call criminal, this is how we're pathologized and when finally the colonized peoples, and I include black people in this, I include the African diaspora in this, when the colonized people. Finally, butts up against that ceiling that the colonizing class or the ruling class creates, knowing that there's only so far you can assimilate, and the last, the last step through which you can never, through which you can never pass, which is assimilating fully into whiteness, and that cannot be done because we are a black people, and underneath whiteness we can never be seen as anything other than subhuman, knowing that that's as far as we can go. A rebellion strikes, and you've seen this throughout history. You've seen this in Haiti. You've seen this in Jamaica. You've seen this in Guyana and Trinidad and Cetera. You've seen this in the, in the United States. You, you see this in every uh, area of the globe where a colonized group of Africans figures out that there is only so far that they can go, and they will never pass into humanity. And the only answer is to rebel. And that's and when when people take the conversation away from those terms. And begin to have the conversation on, well, we could assimilate better if only you would let us, if only you would give us the opportunity. That's where you end up killing revolutions.
2: I'm Elena Hudgens-Lyle.
0: And I'm Harvinder Vadva.
2: We're the hosts of Inappropriate Questions, and we're back with Season 3.
0: With some fantastic guests, we break down questions like...
2: Is asking where are you from appropriate small talk?
1: Is it okay to ask a co-worker how much do you make?
0: Should you ask a polyamorous person do you get jealous?
1: Inappropriate Questions Season 3. Available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You, you mentioned Frantz Fanon a couple of times, and he did speak of colonized intellectuals. And so my question to you is, is there not room? Um, and, and I don't think today we can say that the Blacks we see and hear more in various media platforms, including Isabelle and myself, I, I refuse to, to say that I'm colonized. I am not. But don't you find that there is room for both stories like the ones your your brother could bring forward to larger platforms and also microaggressions. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it doesn't have to because there is a series of problems in the black community. It's not mm-hmm. do you not find their space for to hear them all in various platforms? And also, even if there are things we don't live, it doesn't mean that we can't we can't understand them to a certain extent. And certainly it doesn't mean that we cannot be ambassador for their justices and, 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 and use the platforms that we have.
0: Sure. I mean, that's not to say that people can never understand or relate. I mean, black people are never more than one or possibly even two degrees removed uh, from the uh, the worst aspects of white supremacy, regardless. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how high you rise, there's going to be friends, there's going to be family members, there's going to be people that you grew up with. You're going to be touched by it in some way, shape, or form. Under white supremacy, it's not possible. You're always going to have some sort of contact with it. I'm also not saying that uh, people don't understand what I am saying, and I'll, I'll give you an example of this. Please do. Up until Blackout Tuesday, what you saw in the media, uh, where it came to the, the protests, the uprisings, yeah, you saw the ruling class and you saw white America frightened, actually scared. You saw police precincts being burnt to the ground. Now, you can talk about it as... Peaceful versus non-peaceful protests, and when I say you, I mean I don't mean you. I mean in, in media. No, in don't general. we
1: understand collectively?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you seem to have uh, uh, you know taken a personal attack on this. No, and, no. And I, I, I'm trying to be careful. On the one hand, you know, talking yeah, about that, um, how this why. works out in media. Continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Like, but it's good for us want too to be challenged. to feel like challenged. I'm talking
0: about you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay.
2: So before Blackout Tuesday, yeah.
0: Before Blackout Tuesday, what you saw were uprisings and protests. You saw white America and the ruling class scared. Scared in a way that I haven't, I don't think, seen before in my lifetime. And when the Blackout Tuesday event happened, and for anybody who may not be familiar or doesn't remember, Blackout Tuesday was when a couple of Black women from the music industry, and I don't doubt their intentions, created a hashtag out of solidarity and asked people to turn their Instagram profiles black. And what they were talking about was how the music industry uh, benefits from Black culture, but doesn't give opportunities to Black people. Mm Mm-hmm. Which in, in itself is a noble endeavor, and this is absolutely true. The music industry does profit, if not have a parasitic relationship with, with black communities. And the majority of consumers are whites. The majority of consumers in hip-hop and R&B culture, et cetera, white. Uh, the, the producers, the people that are actually signing the checks, white.
2: Believe me, I know um, how it works. My, the, my husband, who's black, works yeah. in the music industry. I, I have stories go on
0: <laughs> yeah 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 like we I mean we, but, we've all got stories I mean I'm in, I'm in yeah. Toronto and I could tell you yeah
2: yeah so people started talking about the black squares and it changed yes the narrative
0: the conversation that they were attempting to have it seems was that um industries and corporations need to begin taking responsibility for their role in the propagation of white supremacy which is absolutely true however the way that it bore out turned the conversation on a dime What happened was that you saw people putting the black squares and associating it with the hashtag Black Lives Matter. So people that were out engaging in the protests Mm -hmm. couldn't get information on where the protests were going, where to get help if they were arrested, where to get legal support and that sort of thing. And it actually ended up interrupting and in some ways disrupting the protests. But it also disrupted the narrative. After that, you began to see corporations tweeting out Black Lives Matter slogans. Companies like Amazon. Amazon. Which, by the way, in the tech sector, Amazon has more black workers per capita than, than just about any other tech company but the reason for that are, are all of its uh, black employees are working in the warehouses. Amazon is a union busting company. Amazon called out a black employee by name who was trying to organize so that his his, uh, his co-workers would be able to get protective masks uh, would have uh, would have higher standards yeah. of safety. And if they uh, came down with symptoms of COVID that they would be able to take paid leave, Amazon called that black worker out by name. And then what you began to see after that was more corporations that had no affiliation with any sort of uh, black-led movements, have not uh, forwarded the cause of black liberation and have nothing to do with that whatsoever, begin co-opting and recuperating the slogan, Black Lives Matter. And then you began to see people who were oftentimes diversity inclusion consultants showing up on the news rather than the protesters who were in the streets that were previously on the news. And you didn't see conversations about abolishing police, abolishing capitalism, ending white supremacy, ending Western imperialism, particularly American imperialism. You began to see defund the police or reform the police. That's when he began to see people going on CNN to talk about feeling uncomfortable with people looking at them while they're on a first class flight because they were the only, they were the only black person in the first class action of that flight.
2: Mm.
0: Now we're dealing with the vicissitudes of life under white supremacy for the petty bourgeoisie class of black people. And oftentimes what we don't talk about enough in the community is that there is such a thing as economic stratification in the black community. We do
1: absolutely have but, different
0: class positions. Yeah. But
1: what are the solutions then? What do we do? How do we get more media presence and more platforms for the real problems?
0: Well, I'm, all of these problems are real problems, mind you. It's mm-hmm. just some of these problems are more urgent, immediate, and life-threatening. Of course. And what, what that involves is talking to the protesters, talking to the organizers, on the street, inviting the protesters and organizers on the street into the news studios, uh, talk to them on camera, hear out Mm -hmm. what their demands are, and hear them out in such a way that, I mean, when people were hearing abolish the police for the first time, you could just hear the collective gasp of disbelief, like abolish the police? What are you even talking about? Mm -hmm. But we talk about community safety, but we don't talk about the police as an occupying force. You weren't hearing those conversations because people on the street, weren't being talked to. We were talking Mm -hmm. to diversity and inclusion consultants, unfortunately.
1: Mm -hmm. But Andre, you you know, you you speak of the example of the person saying uh, the type of, of treatment she got in first class. Don't you find it's a way also to illustrate so people can see that every day, you know, yes, there are people dying on the streets. That is a fact. But it's also a fact that these things are still happening. Isn't it a parallel to show that the same way um, the you entire know, system is corrupted yeah, from and the, bottom and, to top. Yeah, in the same way that, uh, you know, we weren't allowed to sit uh, at certain tables and restaurants. It's it's like when when Oprah was in Paris and she wouldn't be let in Hermès. And the reason she brought it, is obviously Oprah knew this this isn't the biggest problem that happens to black people. <laughs> it's to show that you still have these, these doors shut to you, just like we did, uh, you know, since the beginning of time.
0: Well... Oprah was racially profiled at Hermes, but also received an apology from Hermes, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly.
1: You are. Uh, are. O- are. Oprah
0: is also, Oprah's also a billionaire.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, o- o- Oprah's responsibility to the black community is not to be an example of what black people can accomplish if they put their mind to it. Because in order to become a billionaire, you have to exploit the labor of others. The responsibility of or, Oprah to the black community, or, yeah, or, yeah. or,
1: we or we have you have to push through, very or you have to make and... a very smart decisions. Yes. I, I think, I, I mean, we, we could talk about Oprah for six yes. hours. She's our queen. You have to be yeah. careful. No, <laughs> no but, but no, but what, no, yeah. No, hey, but, listen.
0: I have this. My mom. There is no bigger fan of Oprah than my mother, and I will. T- hey. <laughs> and and my mother is also my mother is also somebody that is very critical of the capitalist system, and I have to tread lightly when I have conversations about <laughs> Oprah with my mother. Yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, however, the labor exploitation that is required to become a billionaire then disqualifies the billionaire from becoming any kind of arbiter of moral correctness so yes oprah is discriminated against and i think this is a perfect example in hermes but she's still a billionaire she still wields power that the vast majority of black people not in america but across the planet do not mm-hmm. you know think of um i'm not sure if you remember live eight Mm-hmm, of yeah. course, with Bob Geldof.
1: Bob Geldof, 1986.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and do you remember Bono's Red Label? You remember that?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. With, uh, Where with Gap. Where you go to a store, yeah, mm-hmm. and
0: you'd, you'd buy a, an item in the store, and if it had the red label, then a portion of the proceeds would go towards aid in Africa or something yeah. to mm-hmm. that effect. Now, why were we having conversations about famine in Africa as if Africa is a continent that's unable to feed itself? Mm-hmm. Why are we not having conversations about the fact that Africa can feed itself twice over? And the only reason that it can't is b- two reasons. One, because of the crushing effect of post-colonial loans that were proffered by the World Bank and the IMF, which prevented African countries from building infrastructure, from building roads, building hospitals, building schools, et cetera. They could only develop in such a way that they could move precious minerals, agricultural goods, etc., out to ports to be exported out to Western countries. Why were we not having those conversations? Or the fact that there are trade barriers that exist between African countries that prevents them from even offering aid to each other in the case of a drought.
1: Mm-hmm. We
0: weren't having those conversations because we pathologize Africa and we pathologize Africans as inherently dysfunctional. And this has pervaded our mentality across time and across the world. So we think that, for example, Oprah being discriminated against is the problem, when the real problem is this is a lateral oppression between a class of people that we're never going to be in contact with. We're never going to be in contact with Oprah, yeah. etc. Mm-hmm.
1: But my, my point about Oprah, and I don't want to you know go on and on, but it's just because I think it's important to set the record straight. This story could have gone under the radar. The point was to say... This happens regardless of your status. It happens because of the sure. color of your skin. There is no mm-hmm. way Oprah thought for one second this was the biggest problem happening in the world. She wanted to illustrate it. And so, and also, I just want to say. So, I guess that,
0: my question then is what is uh-huh. what is Oprah doing for broader Black communities in America? Why well, is, she, why is, Oprah, a, why is schools... Oprah a billionaire and not using her billions of dollars to uplift Black people altogether, is my question.
2: Let's okay. forget about Oprah. I just <laughs> want to. No, but th- but no, this no, is a broader no,
0: conversation we... for, yeah, for that. Yeah. Yeah. For, no. the class of, for the class of black people, for the class because of we're, black people. Because we're,
2: we're derailing yeah. the conversation. Here yeah. we go. Okay, okay. We're okay, doing okay, exactly okay, okay. what you said, you, <laughs> what you're pointing out right now. So let's yeah. get back. You know, I want to end this understanding properly and tell me if I've understood. Um, mm-hmm. People that are in the media, in the corporate world, um, mm-hmm. especially blacks, have to be always aware that we have to always. Make sure the message from bottom all the way up is being heard. And so that means that we have to make space, room for people, different stories that have different stories that may be creating uncomfortable conversations, but they have to be heard and said.
0: I I would say I fundamentally disagree with that. Um, not not in the sense that stories don't have to be... I mean, stories obviously have to be heard, but I don't think that that's where the conversation begins or ends. Stories being heard has never been... In, okay, Mary Prince, or that is a, a, a an enslaved woman, has a story that was told from the quote-unquote bottom. You know, I, if you're ever going to read the story of Mary Prince, I encourage you to have uh, to be in a good psychological space before you do. Her horrific story of enslavement being told did not move the hearts of... Uh, the British electorate, the British people, or the British ruling class, the abolition of British slavery happened after the Baptist Rebellion, which was a bloody uprising in Jamaica. That's when slavery was abolished. It wasn't through telling stories. And I think that's kind of where we, we get a little bit confused, is that we think that by appealing to our common humanity and telling mm. stories that we're going to move the hearts of Pharaoh. And that's just never been true. Uh, abolition in America didn't happen after Frederick Douglass went on stop tours telling his story of enslavement. It happened after a bloody civil war.
2: So let's get back. What do we do?
0: <laughs> I say this often. You cannot eliminate racism by eliminating capitalism. But without eliminating capitalism, you can't eliminate racism. Mm-hmm. That is the top and bottom of it. The reproduction of capital is inherently dependent on racism, what racism does is actually because we talk about racism as if it's a a blight upon humanity and it it sets us backwards. It's bad for people. Actually, racism is beneficial for a lot of people. Racism drives down wages. Racism creates a surplus labor class. It feeds the carceral system. It drives down competition. So what? racism does at least in the quote-unquote western context is create a class of people that can never be fully human underneath that system but never act in solidarity among their class peers that's actually beneficial for the ruling class inside of capitalism and what we often see in these conversations is a complete aversion to ever talking about class we don't like to talk about class in the black community we'd like to talk Mm -hmm. about rich black people as if this is an aspirational story that you should want to be like them. And what I say is, no, we should never want to be like that. What we should want to do is create solidarity among our class peers and engage in uprising and struggle together.
2: We get what you're saying. We get where you're Mm -hmm. going. I just want to finish on this note. What are your fears and hopes as a father? Because you have two young daughters.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: What are your fears and hopes?
0: My fear is that my daughters are going to have to pick up this conversation in their lifetime. Mm. When mm. My fear is that my daughters are going to have to fight this fight and have to uh, deal with the same problems that we're dealing with now. Mm. If you go back and you listen to some of the uh, the black intellectuals from the 1960s and the 1970s, if you listen to Angela Davis speak, you listen to Kwame Ture speak, if you listened to uh, 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 Kathleen Cleaver speak, if you listen to Asada Shakur speak, you hear the same issues same thing in the Mm -hmm. 1960s and 1970s -hmm. that we're dealing with now they're very prescient and what i don't want is for my daughters to have to continue these same conversations i want us to be able to break the wheel get off of these conversations and be able to exercise solidarity with each other but that also means having very uncomfortable conversations about class and the fact that there are black people that have it like if they succeed then we all succeed but there's no such thing as trickle-down liberation Mm-hmm. I would say that the uh, the one of the biggest obstacles right now is long-term organization that takes into account the fact that we live underneath an oppressive system. As Kwame Ture said, any time you make an analysis of an oppressed people in any aspect of their lives and you leave out the oppressor, you will never come to a correct conclusion. On the contrary, you'll blame the oppressed for their problems. Hmm. Capitalism is black people's biggest oppressor.
1: Andre, your fears are my fears. I, I fear the mm-hmm. same thing that this conversation is going to be the same. But I have hope. Do you have hope?
0: I I have hope that we can change the conversation because I, I think we're seeing it being changed in real time. We were having mm-hmm. these conversations, mm-hmm. you know, from two thousand fourteen to late two thousand nineteen. As a matter of fact, you, know, you began to see companies dismantling their diversity and inclusion boards because that conversation was pretty much over and now we're having the conversation over again. Mm-hmm. But I think this time around, people are wise to the game. I think people are seeing yeah. a repeat of what we just saw a few years ago. And I, I do have hope. I, I do have hope that we can do something differently this time around. And I know that because when I talk to you, my friends and peers that work in radical organizations in Canada and the United States and elsewhere, and they're seeing the winds of change Mm-hmm. Then it, it, it tells me that I mean, I might sound like I'm a pessimist, you know, coming on your show and talking about well, you know, the the the, the black capitalist class is keeping us all down and the buffer class is, is stopping us. I get that. But I think that there is something different this time around and I hope it's gonna bring this conflict to a head where we do get to make a choice. Do we continue on the path of trying to assimilate? Or do we can, or do we do create a new path for ourselves?
2: Thanks. Thank you. No worries. Andre Denise, uh-huh. the author of the forthcoming book on killing a revolution, that was really
1: interesting. Thank you very André, much. that was an education. Thank you for it.
0: Oh yeah, thank you so much.
2: Okay, Andre, thank you. Bye.
1: at the table is hosted and produced by me martine saint-victor and also
2: by me isabelle Rassico. the show is also produced by melissa fundira eunice kim and justin Doucet. our mixer is crystal duhem technical work this week by pierre reville and guy charbonneau our senior producer is tina verma
1: and the executive producer of cbc podcast is arf Nurani. You can also reach us on Facebook at CBC Seat at the Table or tweet us. And don't forget to use the hashtag SeatCBC. Next week is the last
2: episode of the season already, and we're ending it with a very special guest.
0: I actually don't think that we should lower ourselves to be as mediocre as white men. I think that they should raise themselves to be as excellent as black people.
1: Roxane Gay, the best-selling author and contributing opinion writer at the New York Times, joins us at the table. That's right. Until next time, au, au revoir. revoir.
0: For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.